All right, let's continue to worship, shall we, by turning in our Bibles to Revelation 22. Revelation 22, verses 6 to 21, though we won't get to all of those verses this morning. If you need a copy of God's Word, the ushers would be happy to get one into your hands. Revelation, of course, the last book of the Bible. And Revelation 22, the last chapter of the book of the Bible. We've been working our way through Revelation for almost two years now. And with a little bit of a bittersweetness in my soul, this is the end of almost two years of studying God's Word together and laboring in God's Word together and letting God's Word seep into our soul and wash us and change us and prepare us for all that's to come. Almost two years, and this is the end. Three sermons here on John's final chapter. Final reminders, if you will. Final thoughts as his vision of the end times draws to a close. If you recall, John just finished telling us about the new heaven and new earth. He just finished describing the the beauty and the grandeur of something that's literally out of this world, the new holy city, the new Jerusalem. And he just told us at the beginning of chapter 22 in the first five verses that of all things, God will be there. He with us and us with him. Face to face, it says. He with us and us with him, in fact, forever and ever. The end. The end that never ends. That's what we just saw. But the angel who showed it all to John isn't finished. And so neither is John and neither are we. John writes in verse 6, And he said to me, The angel who isn't finished, the angel said to John, these words are trustworthy and true. You see it? And the angel said to me, John writes, these words are trustworthy and true. Let's stop there. Let's stop there because it's the first in a series of reminders that John covers in rapid fashion from one to the next to the next to the next right after each other with no breath and no pause in between. And if we don't pause, if we don't settle in on each of these in turn, we're liable to to miss them. If we don't take them one at a time, we're liable to miss them and miss the importance on our heart and soul and thereby not allow the Holy Spirit to write it on our heart and soul. You with me? We need to let them sink in, starting with the very first words out of the angel's mouth. These words are trustworthy and true. It's a reminder. It's a reminder because God already said it in chapter 21, verse 5. Seems like an eternity ago. God himself said, these words are trustworthy and true. Write these down, he said. John, John, write them down because these words are trustworthy and true. True. They're not just flim flam. They're not insignificant. They're not out on the periphery. They are trustworthy. They're certainly not false. They are trustworthy and true. It's already been said. It's already been said. Same words. These words are trustworthy and true. 
So the angel isn't telling us something new here in chapter 22 at the end. He's reminding us of something true. In fact, it's our first clue that this is the beginning of the end. There's nothing more to tell us about the future. So he begins reminding us of the past, what he already said, what he's already shown John. You know how we need it? Don't you need that? Man, I do. That's one of the reasons that I was so blessed by the little mini-series on the gospel the past three weeks in my absence. We need, I need, constant reminders of God's truth because we're prone to forget. We're prone to wander. Prone to leave the God we love. And so we need reminders to refresh our minds and hearts constantly, constantly, day in and day out. You say, I've already heard the gospel so many times. I don't need to hear it again. Shame on you. Or, or maybe you're unlike every other person who's ever lived on the face of the earth over all the time. I need it and we need it. We need reminders. And so the angel starts with the very foundation, a foundational reminder, the bedrock of revelation, the bedrock of all scripture. These words are trustworthy and true. It's a final reminder to pay attention. It's a final reminder to pay attention. That's the idea, I think. He's not just saying it for the sake of information, of course. He's exhorting us. He's encouraging us. He's urging us to pay attention. Because the things John saw and heard and the things that he recorded are reliable and accurate. Why would you not pay attention to something reliable and accurate that bears on your soul and your heart and all eternity? Why would you not? Pay attention, he's saying. And these things are dependable and factual. In fact, the worst thing that you can possibly do in light of what's written and reminding, reminding us here is to ignore these things. Worst thing that you could possibly do is to ignore the book of Revelation, ignore the warnings, ignore the foresight. No, no, no. A wise man, a wise woman will pay attention to this book. Instead of, you know, sloughing it off as too difficult or, or too, I've heard it all. Instead of sloughing it off as too difficult, you know, the book of Revelation or, or too confusing or too scary, like pay attention to it. Read it and reread it. Know it and study it. It's like we used to do with maps in days of old before the days of garments. Remember garments? You know, you'd buy them and then all of a sudden they showed up on your phone. And before the, the days of all of that, we used to labor and study over maps if we were going to a new city and a new place that we had no clue about. We, we'd like chart it out. We're going to take this turn and that turn on this road and that road. And then on the way, of course, you'd get in a fight with your wife as to she didn't tell you what to do at the right time and the right way and, and so on. And now I just yell at <laughs> but not in the old days like we, we, we labored over the map we labored over the map and we read the road signs we didn't have a picture of turning left or slightly veering off on the off ramp to the right or anything like that we, we had to pay attention to the road signs I'll never forget being in Kuala Lumpur Malaysia about 10 years ago and feeling completely overwhelmed by all the road signs. It seemed like there were more than normal and, and 
every single one of them were in two languages. Just imagine it for a second. Every single one of them were in two languages. And one of the languages was in letters, uh, such a script. I'm not even sure what the name of the language is. But it was in, they weren't English letters. Let's just say that, all right? And so it made it extremely difficult to pick out what you were supposed to see on that particular sign, not to mention the fact it's a city of millions and millions compressed in with all these different roads and motorcycles weaving in and out, not paying any attention to any of the lanes. And I was overwhelmed by it. There was so much going on. And had I thrown up my arms in frustration or ignored the road signs altogether, I wouldn't have known where we were, where we were headed, or how long it was going to be until we arrived. We don't have the luxury of ignoring what the book of Revelation says. There's too much at stake. Too much direction. And if we fail to read it and heed it, we're in trouble. So whatever you do, pay attention. Take it to heart. Especially so because the God who moved the prophets of old to write prophecies that have been fulfilled is the same God who sent an angel to John to prophesy about the future. That's the next part of the verse. Take a look at it there. Second part of verse 6. These words are trustworthy and true, the angel said. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, the prophets of old, has sent his angel in the present, as far as John was concerned, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. His servants referring to us. Saying, that the God who spoke to and through the prophets of old is the very same God who sent his angel to speak about the future. In other words, the prophecies of the future can be trusted just as much as the prophecies of the past. Prophecies to a large extent that have already been fulfilled. We can trust the prophecies of the future because the same God is making them as the one who made them in the past and have been fulfilled to a great degree. That's the idea here. So once again, pay attention. It's trustworthy and true. As true as the prophecies of old that have been fulfilled, especially but not limited to the prophecies of Jesus himself. Trustworthy and true. But instead of just commending this principle to you in general, I want to give you three things in particular to pay attention to. First is the outline of Revelation. Pay attention to the outline. The outline. The overall structure and layout. The framework of these words as the angel says them. Remember that? Remember the outline? It bears repeating. Chapters 1 to 3 are letters to churches. Seven letters to seven uh, first century churches representing all churches. Pay attention. Pay attention. Chapters 4 and 5 describe worship in heaven. Glorious, glorious worship going on right now. The very thing that we can expect and anticipate when we die. It's, it's described here in Revelation 4 and 5. 
And then the largest part of the book talks about the great tribulation. That seven-year stretch during which God is going to judge mankind with devastating results. Followed by chapter 20, talking about the millennium and judgment. The thousand-year reign of Christ on earth and the great white throne. Judgment. And then last but not least, chapters 21 and 22, describing the eternal state. The new heavens and the new earth on which we will dwell with God forever and ever. Loved one, if you're going to understand and apply the book of Revelation, you have to pay attention to that. It will be too confusing. It will be as if it's in a different language if you don't pay attention to that. Second, pay attention to the timeline. Pay attention to the timeline. That is the, the big picture of how it all transpires. You've seen it before. I've showed it to you several times. Final reminders here. The church age there on the left is right now, and it ends when the great tribulation ends, and that ends when Jesus returns. He raptures the saints, immediately returns with us to the earth, where he defeats the powers of evil in the battle of Armageddon. He throws the Antichrist and the false prophet into the lake of fire. He binds Satan, and he begins his millennial reign, the millennium. And then at the end of the millennium, Satan will be released for a little while, the Bible tells us in Revelation 20, released a little while to deceive and gather the nations for a final battle, as if the battle of Armageddon wasn't enough. He'll gather them, Satan will, for a final battle, those who don't believe, and it will result in his banishment to the lake of fire. Followed by the great white throne judgment where unbelievers are also condemned to the lake of fire and believers are ushered into the new heavens and the new earth for all eternity, the eternal state. Pay attention to that and you'll go a long way toward keeping things straight. And then third, pay attention to the signs. The signs of the times. Our times and the future times. And pay attention to the warning signs of things to come. Like the apostasy of churches. Churches that abandon the word, rationalize and diminish sin, and ignore the gospel. Not that that's, you know, something new under the sun. I just finished reading a book called Christianity and Liberalism by a guy named J. Grisham Machen. It was written exactly 100 years ago, this year, 1923. And you would swear that about half of the book, he is directly addressing our time right now. Speaking of the slide of the churches into more and more liberalism, which basically means speaking of the slide of the churches into apostasy, where sin is ignored and diminished, the gospel is no longer preached, and the Bible is no longer held to be God's inspired word through and through, top to bottom, front to back. There's nothing new under the sun, but it's getting worse. It has gotten worse from then and before then and it continues to get worse in our day and it's a sign that we ought to pay attention to. It's just like John was addressing some of the churches in the first three chapters of Revelation. They too, they started that slide even in the first century. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God we love. It's a sign that the great tribulation is getting closer and closer. And we need to pay attention. As is the rampant sin of people. Another sign 
that the time is near. People who are lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, all these listed in 2 Timothy 3. People who are ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, brutal, treacherous, and swollen with conceit. I'm just picking out some of the highlights here or lowlights. Like rampant sin is a sign of the times. From the brutality of terrorists to the arrogance of leaders. The self-absorption of social media to the treachery of protesters and rioters. It's a sign of the times. And how can you miss the early stages of Babylon? In Revelation 18. A worldwide culture, Babylon, is described there by John in his vision that the angel reveals and so on. A worldwide culture of sexual immorality and opulent pleasure. How in the world can you not see that neon sign? Not to mention earthquake, earthquakes like just took place last week in Nepal. Some of the churches in our collective damaged because of it. Earthquakes. Wars, famines, rumors of wars, and last but not least, hatred. Hatred. All birth pains, at the very least, at the very least, birth pains of the Great Tribulation, if not the beginning. Who knows? Who knows? I'll let you know in a few years. So whatever you do, take these words to heart. Oh, take them to heart and pay attention. They're trustworthy. And true. Final reminder. The next comes from verse 7. Where Jesus interjects to say. I didn't say interrupts because. That has a negative connotation to it. It would never be a negative thing for the Lord to interrupt us. He interjects. And he says and behold. I am coming soon. I am coming soon. It's a phrase repeated throughout this passage, several more times in fact, and it's one that I'm going to wait and come back to and address in verse 20, part three of this little mini-series. Behold, Jesus says, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Once again, it's the same verbiage we've seen before. Cluing us in, this isn't something new, but something true that we're being reminded of to allow the Lord to etch it on our heart and soul and make sure that we never, ever forget. In fact, this one was spoken about at the very beginning of Revelation, chapter 1. Chapter 1 has the same verbiage in the first three verses as what we find here in verse 7 and in verse 8 a little bit, it, forming a prologue in chapter 1 and an epilogue, an ending, a beginning and an ending, a prologue and an epilogue in chapter 22. Just listen, Revelation 1.1. 1, 1. The revelation, and, and, and look, at, look at verse 7 as I do this, as I say this. Revelation 1.1 says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. Just like it says in verse 
Six, God sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Verse seven, I'm coming soon. Same verbiage. He made it known, this revelation, still in chapter one, he made it known by sending his angel, ding, 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 to his servant John, same as the angel in verse six, who bore witness, John did, to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw, just like we see in verse 8. Skip down there for a second. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. Same version, same verbiage. He's reminding us. He's reminding us. And chapter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear, here it is, and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Just like Jesus says in verse 7. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Chapter 1. Blessed are those who keep what is written in it. Chapter 22. Blessed are those who keep the words of the prophecy of this book. Same verbiage front and back. Indicating that these are final reminders of some of the most important points. This one for sure. And that is to keep the faith. Keep the faith. We've seen it before and we see it again. Blessed is the one, verse 7, who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book, a.k.a. the faith. Blessed is the one who keeps the faith. That's the idea here of the words of the prophecy of this book. Why? Because biblical prophecy doesn't just foretell the future. It also exhorts us and encourages us and warns us in light of the future that it foretells. Don't miss that. Biblical prophecy, even Old Testament prophecy, is not just foretelling the future. It's exhorting us to pay attention to it and to live in light of it as we are exhorted and encouraged along the way. Like Jesus did over and over in the first three chapters of revelation. Let these wash over you. To the one who conquers, he said. Couldn't help but think of this when we were singing earlier. To the one who conquers, that is the one who overcomes temptation and keeps the faith, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. I will bless him with eternal life. It's a warning and an encouragement and an exhortation. And the one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And the one who conquers will be clothed in white garments. And the one who conquers will sit with me on my throne. It's an exhortation over and over again from the very mouth of Jesus himself to keep the faith and a promise of blessing if we do. Who doesn't want that? And so why would we not keep the faith? Why would we de-church? Why would we throw in the towel? Why would we leave behind the things that we first professed? Same is true of the encouragement to be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Be faithful. Keep the faith unto death, and I will give you the crown of life, Jesus said. And hold fast what you have until I come. I hope you never forget those two words. I hope you never disassociate them with the book of Revelation. I hope you never separate them from all that the Lord wants to do in and through you right now and in all that is to come. Hold fast. Hold fast. Hold fast. Keep the faith. Over and over and over again, we're told this in the book of Revelation. 
Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. It's a reminder to keep the faith. And then, of course, a little later on in Revelation, after warning us about the persecution of the beast, the, the Antichrist in Revelation 13, John reiterates it. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. And the same in chapter 14, after we're warned about the mark of the beast, the infamous mark of the beast, the point of which is to urge us to keep the faith. The point of the mark of the beast is not to, you know, fantasize or have all these imaginations about what it might be and, and ooh and ah and, and, and the nuances here and there. The point of it is to keep the faith in light of it. Oh, God, help us. Here's a call. After warning us about the mark of the beast, here's a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Over and over again, we're exhorted to keep the faith. Hold fast. Persevere. Stay the course. And not just to avoid judgment, praise God, but receive blessing. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book, verse 7. Blessed. Miss that. Miss the reminder here. And you'll miss everything. Everything. You'll miss the blessing, the point, the victory, the reward, all of it. All of it. I don't care how you parse this book out. I don't care what your eschatology is. I don't care how knowledgeable you are about all things end times. If you miss the exhortation to hold fast and keep the faith, you probably won't. You probably won't. And you'll miss out for all eternity. Final reminder. Keep the faith. And then third is a reminder in verses 8 and 9 to worship. Check it out there. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Right idea, wrong application. It's just like when we read the Bible sometimes, like there is a correct interpretation of each and every scripture. There can be many applications, but that is not to say that every application that we come up with under the sun is an accurate a representation and an accurate application of the interpretation of the text. John had the right idea, but the wrong application. And it's not the first time. Here's the reminder thing again. It's not the first time. John did the very same thing in chapter 19. The marriage supper of the Lamb had just been announced. And John says in chapter 19, verse 10, Then I fell down at his feet, the feet of the angel, to worship him. And the angel rebuked him then as well. Yet he does it again right here. Like, what is up with that, John? 
He does it again right here. It's almost like he couldn't help himself. Unless you're a bit quick to throw a stone at John and to judge John for doing the same wrong thing again. Like, like just put yourself in his situation. An angel was standing in front of him. What Hebrews chapter 1 verse 7 describes as a flame of fire. Anybody ever had a flame of fire standing in front of you? We probably shouldn't cast a stone at John then. He had this flame of fire standing in front of him, in front of him a spiritual being with the power to crush him. The angel could have crushed him. Between his thumb and forefinger, if an angel has that. And not only that, but this angel was a messenger from the very presence of God. Still glowing with the glory of God. And he was a speaker of soul-penetrating truths that John could not escape if he wanted to. No wonder he falls at his feet. No wonder he worships. But the angel says, you must not do that. Biblical verbiage for knock it off. <laughs> knock it off. Why? Why such strong language? You must not do that. Because it's idolatry. It's idolatry. The adoration, hear me on this, the adoration and exaltation of someone or something that's not God as God is idolatry. The adoration and exaltation of someone or something that's not God as God is idolatry. But the reason the angel gives is that he doesn't deserve John's worship. The idolatry is certainly implied from what we know of the rest of Scripture. But what the angel says is, don't do that because I don't deserve your worship. I'm a fellow servant. You see it there? A fellow servant. You must not do that. Verse 9, I am a fellow servant. A fellow bondservant is the literal word. Someone conscripted and someone constrained by the love and power of God just like us when he saves our soul and makes us whole. We are conscripted and constrained by the love and power of God. Do you feel it? Do you know it? If you do, you're saved. If you don't feel that conscription, that irresistible draw toward the Lord because of his goodness and greatness, if you don't know the power of God to keep you and hold you, you're not saved. And the best thing you can possibly do is get on your knees and say, Oh God, oh God, conscript, conscript me and constrain me. Here I am. The angel knew it. I'm a co-laborer with you, he says. Don't worship me because I'm a co-laborer. I'm a fellow servant with you. With you and your brothers, the prophets. That is, those who have gone before. And, and, I'm a fellow servant, fellow bondservant with those who keep the words of this book, a.k.a. genuine followers of Christ. Because people who just profess Christ with their word but don't follow Christ with their lives are not genuine followers of Jesus. He says, I, I'm, a, I'm a co-laborer, I'm a fellow servant with you, with those who keep the words of this book. 
We're in this together, he's saying. We're in it together. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. God alone is to be exalted. Not me, not you, not anybody else. Angels included. The angels may be vastly different in ability and power, but we all serve. We all serve the same master, and we all declare the same message. Fellow servants, one and all, of the one true God. But the main point, the reminder, is the last two words of verse 9. Worship God. Worship God. We saw it in chapter 19. The angel said it there, and we see it again here. Final reminder. Worship God, not the Antichrist. Worship God, not the culture. Worship God, not idols or false religions or false prophets or false narratives. Don't do it. Don't do it. Now or later. Worship God. Make him first and foremost in your mind and heart and life. Worship God. Worship God and only God. Yahweh, not some nebulous, you know, rumination about God and some being that might be out there. But we're talking about Yahweh, God, the biblical God, the only God. Worship him, the great I am, the one who was and is and always will be, the one who created and sustains the universe, the one who's over all and Lord of all, including you, whether you've Bent the knee or not. Worship the one who knows all and judges all. The one who loves you and saved you, rewards you and rescues you, blesses you and keeps you. Worship him. Worship him. He not only deserves it, but he commands it. Worship God, the angel said. It's a command. So how about it? How about it? Who do you worship these days? Can, can we have some individual moments of honesty right now? As hard as it might be to admit, who do you worship these days? Is it God or someone else? To whom do you... Here's another way of asking it. To whom do you devote yourself? Or, or to what? Fantasy football? That's only half tongue-in-cheek. Music? Social media? Work? Your business? Who or what do you adore and exalt at God's expense? You may not think of it that way. You probably don't think of it that way. But when you get right down to who or what do you adore and exalt at God's expense? Who or what supersedes him in your life? Better yet, if your answers were based on your checkbook and your calendar, what would they be? 
If your answers were based on what you spend your money on, what you invest, what you give toward, if anything, and what you spend your time on, what you devote yourself to, your checkbook and your calendar, what would the answers be to these questions? Like who or what occupies first place in your life? Yourself? Your money? Your family? Your hobbies? Like what occupies your mind and heart for the most part? Who or what do you love most? They're legit questions that beg for answers because the answers reveal the focal point of our worship. And if it's anything other than God, you're living a life of idolatry. When Becky and I were in Florida recently, we went to, wait for it, a popsicle shop. I know, crazy, getting crazy. I've never been to a popsicle shop. I didn't even know that they existed. In fact, this is true, before we had kids, some 30 years ago now, before we had kids, I didn't even know that you could buy popsicles in the store. I thought that, you, I thought that only moms could make them in freezers with Kool-Aid. <laughs> true. Oh, I loved those things. Hot summer day. That was a taste of heaven. Popsicle. So we went to this popsicle shop, and, and Becky and all of her genius, she found this and so on. And, but we had no idea what we were in for. And when we got there, like, the popsicle, she loved hers. My, mine was fine. It was fine. Popsicle. Nothing like mom's great Kool-Aid in the freezer with the little Tupperware thing that you had to run hot water over, you know, in order to get it out. You know what I'm talking about? If you don't know what I'm talking about, man, you've missed out on life. <laughs> the popsicle was fine. It was okay. But the store, the shop, I don't use this word lightly. It was awesome. <laughs> True. And it wasn't awesome because it was huge. It wasn't awesome because it was in, you know, the best, greatest mall. It was in this, like, half-run-down strip mall thing alongside of some road somewhere. We pulled in the parking lot, and I'm thinking, where did you bring me, Becky? <laughs> it, wasn't because, and it wasn't because the inside was, like, so ornate or, or anything like that that it was awesome. It was awesome because front and center on the wall, when we walked in, could not miss, was this. And on top of that, everything we do is an act of worship. I mean, I couldn't believe it. And on top of that, they even put a little candy heart on the corner of every popsicle with a reference to a Bible verse. I think it was Proverbs 11:25. I mean, I saw that sign and I almost started preaching. <laughs> and we were the only people in the shop. <laughs> you know you worship God when everything you do is an act of worship. You know you worship God when 
I so much want to be like that. I so much want my life to be like that and to reflect that. And I think you do too by virtue of the fact that you're sitting here this morning and that you keep coming week in and week out. You know you worship God when everything you do is an act of worship. When you're so enamored and so focused and so gripped by his glory and greatness, you show it and proclaim it even with popsicles. Final reminder. Pay attention. Keep the faith. And worship God. Let's pray. God, open our eyes. Rend our hearts if need be and help us. Oh God, quicken us to pay attention. Quicken our hearts. Soften our hearts. Break our hearts if necessary to pay attention to these words. Steal our Resolve to persevere. And oh God, for your glory and our joy, spur us on to worship you with our entire lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.